0: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Chariot's uh, TechCast. We are here for Tech Chat Tuesday. My name is Ken Rimple, and I'm joined, as always, by uh, Snoop Doggy Dog there.
1: Also <laughs> like, known as uh, Sujan Kapadia.
0: That's right. You had the, That's your title on there with Snoop Doggy Dog. <laughs> so um, now I know. So, uh, yeah, we're here to talk about the latest uh, tech. This week, we're going to kind of re back to our old format. Uh, We don't have a deep topic for the week. We're going to do some news items. Uh, Hopefully, for the next one, we'll have a a deeper topic to work on. That's on me. But uh, there's some interesting things swirling around this week. If you're interested in what uh, we talk about, feel free to hit chariotsolutions.com, which is our website, and there's a blog. Uh, If you go to the resources menu, there's blogs and podcasts. And so we have a number of articles there, which we'll talk about a little later. Also, if you hit uh, YouTube, you can find us at youtube.com slash Chariot Solutions. And if you look at our playlists, we've got tons and tons of content, including content on these uh, terms, Philly ETE, which stands for Filling Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, which we've run for, I think it's 16 years now total. Um, So just just before I came to Chariot, actually, they started doing emerging technology for the enterprise. And uh, so speaking of We'll tee that up up front. Uh, we have a conference coming up on April 19th to 20th. It is virtual. Hopefully this is the last year we have to do this, but I said that before, but uh, due to COVID, we're just keeping it safe and doing virtual again. It's very low cost at 150, uh, and it's again, two days, uh, and it's been highly uh, you know, lauded for our speakers and content over the years. We've got some great talks this year, as we always do um i do love that uh there's some like you know virtual talk examples of like all the things that have happened we use slack to communicate uh so across all of our different rooms we have like kind of rolling slack and then we break out slack channels for things that are interesting and for support and uh other things like that so we certainly take advantage of slack for that uh and look at these speakers we have we've got cory doctorow a famed science fiction author who just uh, you know, it's just amazing. He's got all sorts of really cool stuff going on. He's written some fiction and nonfiction books recently. Uh, he's a futurist, uh, activist, a journalist, uh, and just does really, really great stuff out there. He's a member of the, um, uh, electronic Fr- frontier foundation, uh, media research lab, uh, media lab research affiliate, uh, professor in multiple places. And look at this. He was conduct- inducted into the Canadian science fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame in 2020. So Awesome. I think we should pay
1: a lot more attention to science fiction authors than people realize because a lot of what they say at some point tends to come true.
0: It's very Yeah, very good point. Very good point. So yeah, so check this out. Uh, Again, it's phillyemergingtech.com or phillyete.com, both links work. We've got some uh, people who've been here before, such as Jessica Kerr, who is now, uh, she has great talks for us. She is now a member of the committee as well. Uh, and so she's coming back and having a talk. We're going to have um, uh, Charity Majors from Honeycomb, who works with her, is a really good speaker. James Ward uh, is speaking um, with Bruce Eckel, by the way, on a Java talk. Why you should be focusing on Java um, functional. I think Java 17, I believe, is the talk there. Uh, and just a lot of other people. We got Josh Long from VMware coming in uh, talking about Spring because Spring is go- undergoing a big change to, like, force itself to work with modern Java specifically in its next big release. Um, you name it. There's all sorts of interesting things going on. So again, check it out. Uh, Our very own
1: group Harm's is going to be speaking as well. And I think I see Ken Rimple there. I'm not sure.
0: Who? Yes, you're right. Yes. With some cheese guitars. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be talking about uh, single page app, acceleration frameworks uh, and uh, performance tuning based on those and based on Google lighthouse.
1: So It'd be oh, cool to talk to Josh Long and James Ward together because like James Ward now is Kotlin product manager at Google. Oh, yeah. We, oh, no, well, is it Google? Maybe. I forget. Yeah, it's um, Google. Yeah. And then Josh Long is talking about how to modernize Spring with, you know, new versions of Java. And I'm sure that he's probably going to touch upon Kotlin as well there.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because I know that people are starting to do and have been doing for a while some Spring apps written in Kotlin to kind of simplify yeah. the syntax and stuff too. Neat. So, anyway, so check us out at phillyemergingtech.com and it will throw us over to that site. And it's a buck fifty, really nice and affordable. Uh, and you'll get all the talks as early as, as we have them, uh, you know, for, for archival purposes. You can take a look at them later before we put them out to the big public. Uh, and so you'll get access to that as well and meet a lot of cool people. It's a lot of fun meeting people at ETE. Okay, so let's talk some news. Um, let's see here. So, let's start off. Who has been playing Wordle? Such Played been a Wordle? couple times. Yeah, not daily. Yeah, I started getting a little addicted to it just because it's a fun little game. I like games like Sudoku and stuff like that. So, a little puzzle you can do kind of at your own pace and figure out. But apparently, a lot of people like it uh, because you see it on Facebook all the time. You see he's My really- brother
1: texts me every morning with his Wordle result. I think he's trying to get me to play.
0: Yep, yep, exactly. So this is the game. You know, you, you. I clearly did not spell that right on purpose, but uh, you take six guesses at a at a word, Um, and if it turns green, you got the right letter at the right position. If it's yellow, you got a letter in the word, but it's not in the right position. And if it's dark, like black or dark gray, it means it, it isn't in the word. So basically, you have a number of chances to get the word right. Um, but the thing is. New York times looked at it and said, we want that. And because they have all sorts of little games and puzzlers and it's cheaper for them, I guess, to buy that and have it online and get it up and skinned in their mobile app and stuff. Probably. Yeah. I mean, they're buying be... the user base. Yeah. Right. And just here it is. Now the thing is they're going to leave the current wordle out there probably because it's got some pre burned words that can probably run for a year or two, I'm guessing, but they're going to probably put it in their applications and their website. Certainly that's their goal. Um, And the the, the creator made over a million dollars for it. So, man, good for him. Um, And his name is not Wordle. His name is, I'm not going to find it here in time, uh, Josh Wardle. That's his name. Uh, And he has his own statement there that basically said, uh, you know, that he's letting them take it over. uh, And it seems like it kind of caught fire and then he had to deal with maintaining it. And he's loving the fact that they uh, have it and then when the game moves to the nyt site it'll be free to play for everyone and i'm working with them to make sure your wins and streaks will be preserved that's kind of cool. so
1: that's a little bit inaccurate it's free for new and existing users for a limited period of time until nyt deems to make it a bit you know paid
0: so yeah, okay yeah there you go well anyway hats off to him because that's a that's a nice coup for him as a app developer to put that up there and, and you know oh. the cool thing about it was It'll work on anything. It's a simple HTML JavaScript app. Yeah. All you know?
1: the, the, it's interesting. The list of words is all in program memory, so it's a static. <laughs> Remind me of the old days of programming where all your data was already like included in the source code, yeah. um, and loaded into memory. So people have done statistical analyses using that word list with um, what are the optimal letters to use to try to maximize your chances of winning in the least amount of steps.
0: Yeah, it's 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 in here. Um, if we scroll down long enough. You know, it's it you would find it eventually. But the bottom line is it's a JavaScript application. So I think it took him
1: an hour, a couple hours or something like that to make in that little tweet he said. So it pretty pretty good a return on
0: investment there. God. We're gonna see a ton of little tiny apps of people throwing out there to try to do this again. Okay, here's another one that's a little less fun. Um, Apparently, there's been a bug lurking for 12 years in the Linux world uh, that gives attackers root as long as they're logged in as any user on most major Linux distros. Now, there are patches out there. It's called PawnKit. And so uh, what you do, what they did in their example, is they ran a little script that they wrote that accessed a program called PK. Uh, what is it called, PK, I'm not going to find it now, PK exec. Um, and so if PK exec, exec sits on your system, they can hack into it without a pseudo and they get root right away just by running their little exploit. So, and they mentioned this a while ago. Um, so they're doing everything the right way. They've contacted people to try to get the the, the stuff changed. Um, if you can find a patch to your operating system that that uh, makes PK exec not execute, et cetera, uh, and there are advisories from Debian, Ubuntu, and Red Hat. So this Rs article here, Rs Technica, uh, by Dan Gooden uh, kind of goes through how you would go about and protect it. Um, but, yeah, oh, here it is. Yeah, so, um, you know, they just kind of go through and, and walk through the exploit. I believe that's supposed to be animated, but for some reason it isn't. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there we go. So, so like, uh, it's a the showing it's a 20.04.3 LTS uh, Linux. They run the the, the exploit and it immediately does a root right away and they can do whatever they want so you like so patch your linux if you don't have it patched already to deal with this exploit um you know it's lower surface area because you have to be logged in but still it's still scary logged in it's scary to get access to root without actually having cool. credentials for it it's not
1: great imagine all the devices out there that are running some variant yeah. of linux that Routers. may have this on there exactly
0: mhm Yeah. And people don't set their passwords. Oh boy. Writing a printer driver in JavaScript. What are you doing over there?
1: So this is pretty cool. This person or has a shipping company. So they deal with all the different shipping providers out there and printing labels and things like that. And I guess they wanted to build their own like one-stop solution. So one, this depends on Raspberry Pi and they bought some low cost off the shelf printer, um, I forget the brand name. It's actually mentioned in there. They bought it off of Amazon. Polono um, label. Polono. For Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: the more expensive ones are Zebra by several hundred dollars. And there's a, apparently a well-known language mm-hmm. that Zebra supports and created called ZPL, mm. um, Zebra Programming Language, which is used to send commands to Zebra printers for uh, printing labels. So he was hoping that the cheaper version he bought would support ZPL. So he basically like looks at the docs. Looks at the code when he's installing it. Um, there are some installation errors, goes to the docs. Um, basically, it does not look like it supports ZPL. And apparently, uh, that Polono thing he bought is using a driver that was meant for another printer at one point in another brand. So he found docs on that. Anyway, long story short, finds out that it is sort, does not support ZPL and that he's going to have to write something on his own to be able to tell the printer to uh, print labels. Um, was hoping that. He could use the ZPL code itself to print on there, or write a translator from ZPL to what's called TSPL um, for the Polono. Um, that he was not able to figure out or get working. So then, these shipping providers provide PNGs, uh, JPEGs, ZPL, etc. He ended up having to use PNG, for example. Found a JavaScript image manipulation library to read through the PNG, takes pixel by pixel, converts it to the tspl commands for that printer then it can tell it to print a label so he did all that in javascript you know it's probably an npm module and he put it in installed it runs on the raspberry pi for this unique box that he built to print those labels out um two interesting things there it's one he's done javascript all the debugging effort that took him to get to that point of having to like reverse engineer stuff and go through manuals and figure it out in, in a short period of time and then uh he is using a a service called EasyPost, which I looked up. Which is interesting, is a shipping service that talks to FedEx, USPS, USPS, everybody, and it can do things like uh, compare shipping rates, figure out the lowest shipping rate, uh, give you label images, etc. Looks pretty neat. I'm actually going to look at that API later on. There's a free developer API, so he uses JavaScript, EasyPost, Raspberry Pi, and this cheap off-the-shelf label printer to build one solution to basically support all your shipping needs. Which is, pretty, is
0: really cool. awesome. But he's yeah. building a
1: startup around this. Um, I, I thought that was quite, quite interesting.
0: He's a very resourceful person. And so you can tell he's the, the right kind of engineer to come up with this. Yeah, for sure. So you're looking for a job anyway. Uh, exactly, <laughs> speaking right. of, Hey, speaking of we're hiring, um, <laughs> Jerry solution.com slash jobs. All right. So, um, let's talk about this, uh, pie box then. So, so um, been, this is the Harbor solution he's working with. Yeah. So, well, partner. from the
1: article, this was linked, um, a Raspberry Pi CM4 NAS based solution. So, apparently, I think you can stick several SSD drives in here okay. um, and get your own local um, backup storage. So, it's not on the cloud or anything like that. Totally local, cheap, um, at least the enclosure and the Raspberry Pi and the software being cheap. Um, I don't know about the drives. I don't know whether this supports any RAID levels or things like that. So, how, you know, really how robust is it and should you fully rely on this in itself? But, you know, small form factor cheap to put together overall and, um, probably, probably reliable. I don't know. Um, but you can fit it anywhere in your house. So, for, you know, if you want to get up and running and try your own NAS thing, this seems interesting to look at,
0: you know, it's, it's funny cause you think about, I put everything on OneDrive, for example, that I work on. So that way I can go to whatever computer I'm on and I have that and I can, I can, make things basically sit in the cloud and not take up space, that kind of thing. And people use Dropbox and various Amazon based drives or Google drives yeah. for that kind of stuff too. But it's, it's, it's in the cloud. So if something serious happened to some cloud provider where the data get lost, and as we saw in the last show, you know, there was one like uh, machine learning giant bit of data that was cloud based that was lost by this company in Tokyo. Like if it's gone, it's gone. So like they always tell you when you back up, back up to multiple destinations. Exactly. So if so you, you could, could somehow time machine to this thing. Right. You could use something know, like this and
1: have some scripts that let's say sync to S3 periodically and have some um, kind of have some rules on S3 to say, okay, uh, certain content can go into cold storage or can go yeah. into, you know, inner, you know, what infrequent access storage, things like that to, to optimize your costs.
0: It's very cool. It's something to look at because it's not like it has to be super, super fast. It just has to be able to keep up with your stream data for backups and, if it's a Raspberry Pi, the hardware is a lot cheaper than buying some real NAS, which is usually, I think, overly expensive for what it is. Yeah, you know?
1: and easy to – yeah, I think the ones that – I don't have one, but ones of my friends, you tend to be Synology. They're, they're not mm-hmm. cheap. No, um, no, they're not. You can also carry this around really easily with you. Yeah,
0: throw in a backpack. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Um, SimpleDB, a basic database built from scratch, relational database.
1: Um, this is pretty cool. So the, this person was a student at UCLA and said like the database class wasn't really ever that challenging and they never really got into the internals. And this person was always wondering, well, how do databases actually really work? So, um, I think that I believe it's MIT, um, looked at the MIT database systems course. Um, and I, I assume there were assignments on there to say like, you know, start from something basic and build it up. So he built a database from scratch. Um. And you see that this diagram's interesting because it kind of goes over the different things you have to think about, the different components. Yeah. So he went through and built each of those things. I think he got up to the point of having like, you know, asset transactions, caching, um, you know, query planner, query optimizer, obviously parser, um, and then, you know, disk storage, obviously, and flushing to disk. Doesn't have indices or things like that, but he could add that on afterwards. So pretty cool that he went down all the way to the basics to start from scratch because that's like the best way to actually learn how something works is build a model and or simulate something, right? There's a lot of cool techniques we can use in software engineering to learn more about a problem, Um, modeling, simulation, um, small proof of concept efforts like this. Um, And I always like classes or or universities that take a bottoms up approach to learning versus just giving you something high level and then giving you exercises around using the high-level thing and instead of saying, hey, no, go build this. You learn so much more that way.
0: Absolutely. So Akila Wallahinda, it looks like. Um, yeah. yeah, very smart and uh, great way of learning uh, like just what's behind a relational database because yeah. if you just learn the SQL, it's really cool to learn set theory and SQL and and, and know how access you know works that way, data access through through a relational algebra, so to speak, but to actually know the guts of it enough to understand that you need to pull things in. uh And to do that, you need to be able to deal with locks and the locks have to prevent two processes from interleaving and cause a deadlock. He already figured that out. So that's yeah. a really good thing. Um, exactly. He's basically building in all the, the different governors and planning and, and, you know, uh preventions and things like that. So yeah, the indexing is a, ne- a next step on this. So it, it's great to it, learn that stuff.
1: It demystifies a lot. of It, it, it shows that for sure, things are not as hard as they appear. Like you can break it down and yeah. learn it. And hey, as as Ken mentioned in the previous thing, if if there's listeners out there that like doing this kind of stuff, have broken things down and have projects they're proud about, you know, reach out and talk to us. We're hiring, and we definitely love talking to people like this.
0: Yep, yeah, CherrySolutions.com. Just go ahead and throw it up there, and then I believe it's in Join Our Team on the About page right there. So if you're curious, come talk to us. We'd love to see you. All right. Um, This one was, yeah, this one was kind of funny, I thought. Um, And, you know, trolling through Twitter to try to find news articles and hack URLs and other places is always fun. But then I ran into this little uh, tidbit. I believe it was on Hacker News or something. My dishwasher won't start until I let it update its firmware over the (laughs) Wi-Fi. What if you can't get to Wi-Fi because the password changed or something? Like, how do you change the darn password in that thing? Um, Usability, right? I mean usability is not just a software concept it's a hardware interaction concept too isn't it yeah i
1: think you're going to see more and more of this with appliances and connected devices and stuff this this actually led me down uh, i've seen this on hacker news and it it led me down another thread um about dishwasher discussions and there's a person technology connections on youtube that demystifies a lot of this stuff and gets into how things work i haven't seen it but i need to have heard it's highly recommended um anyway do you know why modern dishwashers are a lot more efficient? No, why? So the the primary um energy sink for a dishwasher is heating the water. That's it. The the impeller, the thing that spins, you know, the water out doesn't take much energy. So almost all of it's heating water and people really? like their dishes done fast. So if you do something like in an hour long cycle, it's spending a lot of energy to heat up the water and then in an hour throwing all that heated water out. Yeah, so right. New York dishwashers work at lower temperatures, and they say actually a, a long cycle uses less water and less energy than a short cycle. So if you were to let your dishwasher run for three hours, it would have a lower temperature and use less water, and it recycles that water for the duration of three hours. So you're actually getting uh, more efficient usage out of that than a one-hour cycle. It's actually interesting stuff that I'd never really
0: considered. Very cool. Very interesting. Um, yeah. So that's, that's always fun. Now, what about this one? Okay. So um, <laughs>
1: disclaimer, I used to own a Tesla for two years. Um, You know, I, I sold it early last year. I should have waited a lot longer because I could have made a lot more money off of it. But mm-hmm. anyway, I'm not upset about that. Um, So I, I don't have this version. because I don't have the car right now, but they have changed the UI over the years um, and recent changes have been not intuitive, put it that way. People got used to the UI over over the years and it followed some standard design principles that I think vehicles have for decades where like the common things around temperature and defroster, defogger, etc., were all available as prominent icons on the bottom of the screen. You can't yeah. see at the bottom of the screen. And then this other UI update changes all that. And now to get to the defogger is like, two levels down. It's not on the main screen. If you're driving a car fast and your windshield fogs up and you have to like now go through and figure out where it is, that's not good. Like that is terrible no. UI and UX and you probably should not be experimenting with UX when it comes to vehicle controls because people expect things to work a certain way for a long time. So this is a downside of having a touchscreen and having a fast release cycle because yeah. you can make braking changes that you're not really found out until more and more people use them in like in the actual field. So that scares the crap out of me.
0: Yeah. I don't blame you, you know, on my bolt, um, the, so you can turn up and down the defrost, uh, the the temperature and you can change the position with hard buttons, right. But to turn on the air conditioning, to turn on the heating and off again, there, but there are touch buttons at the bottom of the screen. So it's the same kind of thing. They could move those theoretically. And sometimes the screen locks up every once in a blue moon, I'll come in yeah, and exactly. I can't hit the screen. So I have to, as I'm driving, I'm holding the power button and the right button. <laughs> and I'm like waiting for the screen to reboot. I'm like, What the hell You're is like, going hey, on with this thing? Doesn't that make a screenshot? No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, right. You got all Um,
1: So, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, like, so I mean, strange. I this hard buttons would be better in my yeah. opinion for the primary Absolutely. basic functions of the vehicle. Um, and, I don't, I don't know. They should either provide options to allow people to like configure it the way they want or have a couple different styles, and you get to pick the style. Like, If you don't want to opt for the latest and greatest UI change, you shouldn't have to.
0: Like with Google and other things, do you want to use the new UI or the older AWS console? Yeah you can go back to the old one if you're not used to how it works. And so this is the same kind of thing. Have they announced any kind of updates for this or is it just, I don't know, to be honest, I don't
1: know if it's changed. I'd have to ask one of our um, other cherry colleagues that own a Tesla, whether they've gone back. Yeah. Yeah. We'll find that. Now they have voice commands and stuff, but sometimes that's also janky. So like, I wouldn't want to have to have to rely on a voice command because, because of, you know, because of this, I just want to be able to drive click. Yeah. It becomes muscle memory to yeah, be able to click exactly. where you need to click.
0: Absolutely, oh man. Well, here's something that hasn't been anywhere. You know, usually with cars, I know this is the old George Carlin joke. It's like he said that, uh, you know, he loved the car where the, the door handle was recessed underneath and he opened it. it's like, they removed that because we like that. Well, here's the opposite. Um, we, right. we have uh, the fetch library. So I have been, as I've been doing JavaScript for a while, um, I got used to using um, well from the Angular side they bring their own stack um, so they got their own you know network client um, the HTTP client and it probably uses Fetch behind the scenes or XHR I don't know but uh, with React I've been using Axios for a while uh, and I noticed that this article came in that where they've So Fetch has been built into the browser as a replacement for the old XML HTTP request stack that that they've had in browsers forever. It's one of the the standards uh, for HTML and JavaScript. Uh, Fetch is now baked into pretty much every browser of any somewhat recent vintage in the last couple of years. And you can use a polyfill script to add it if you don't have it. So it just basically behind the scenes makes a function that probably calls us XHR if you don't have it. But um, one of the places that you don't have it uh, is on the Node side. They didn't include fetch yet in the libraries for Node. So fetch is the network library. You want to go and get a network request with JSON. You want to come back and put it on a a browser. You get your response and whether it worked. Uh, They didn't have a version of it for Node.js. And there were all sorts of like, you know, potential ways to patch that. There was like a Node fetch library that is a polyfill that basically added the fetch function to global. uh, And suddenly you have... Fetch. You know, it's not the native Fetch, but Fetch. Um, so I was chatting back and forth with one of our uh, other developers and um, I won't out his name, but um, he was talking about it. And he said, you know, the thing is, if you use something like Axios and, and you try to use it and, and hit network access, it's assuming an XHR stack. And he's ran into problems where not everything has that anymore. So he said, actually, I've been using Fetch. Uh, and Fetch is kind of the library you want to go to first because it, it behaves properly. Um, I might actually have him on to talk about some more recent JavaScript things in the future, so I don't want to t- take too much thunder on this. But it's good to know that like Fetch is something that now you can do both. Uh, as of uh, a recent version of Node, they're adding it, so by the next major release of Node, it'll be there, um, which I believe is 17. I don't even know anymore. But know that it, it will be available to you, uh, and it will be on parity with the one in the browser. So you can kind of write components, for example, of using Next.js or something. You can write components with the fetch library and you use it the same way, whether you're prefetching on the server or you're fetching on the client side, which is kind of cool. So that's the commit there for that is what this is recording. So assume um, well, other
1: libraries that are HTTP-based libraries or servers are going to patch themselves to use fetch?
0: I would think so. Uh, I'm not so sure if there are other good alternatives to okay. Axios that aren't XHR. But I mean, I think on the on the server side, you have a lot more options because you're not running in a sandbox browser, sure. right? So anything that come up with is probably fine, regardless what you're using, as long as the stack behind it is there. But yeah, now you'll have a native, uh, you know, fetch library, which is interesting. It's specifically for things like uh, Next.js and Remix Run and things like that, where you've got this component object that may or may not run all of itself on the client. Sometimes it might pre run things on the server and render itself and send the content back down already rendered. That's where this is really powerful. And then you don't have to actually install a library once you get to that particular version of node on the server side. So it's pretty cool. Cool. Hey, if you have MacBook pros, um, and so this is on uh, tech. Oh, I should mention, uh, prior just to get credit credits due. Jensen.org slash Tesla for the one that, uh, we were oh, hard about that. No, that's okay. Um, for Tech Radar had an article out, and I've seen a couple other places and and Twitter, people freaking out about updating to Monterey, twelve point two. I have a upgrade notice in mine, uh, and apparently, if you do that, it keeps waking up and talking to Bluetooth when you have the lid closed in your laptop. <laughs> so there's an issue with it. Now I'm, I would bet by the next day or two or three, if it's that bad. Uh, you're probably going to have an updated 12.2.1. But yeah, MacBook uh, Monterey 12.2 could be the blame for MacBook Pro battery problems.
1: Wakey, wakey battery draining. That's funny. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, and so here's here's what uh, the Bluetooth sleep, wake, battery murdering glitch looks like personified by my keyboards, caps, locks, light. Off is sleep, on is dark wake. Leave your laptop unplugged and sleeping overnight. Bye bye to the battery. So. <laughs> not great. So in other words, if you're on 12.2 and you're suddenly seeing this, shut it down when you're done with it until you get a patch, because otherwise you'll drain your battery every night. And that's not good for the battery to deep cycle the battery a lot. Um, you know, so there, I'm sure there will be an update, but just if you're getting this around February 1st, double check that this isn't patched yet before you upgrade to 12.2. That's a bad it's not problem. patched. Don't go there. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. And then my last one for the week, um, I got burned by this. I was going through and updating an old uh, code testing example that I had actually for our code test. And we use, uh, on one of our code tests, we have um, Faker. Faker is a JavaScript library that makes up fake data. So I was just generating fake data for a JSON response. And the server does that and puts it in memory. So when you hit a REST endpoint, it brings back fake things, you know. Mm -hmm. So I went to upgrade it. And I got this error basically saying that Faker, you know, wasn't available. Actually, it was a weirder error than that. Let me see if they have it in here. Um, This is in bleepingcomputer.com. Where is it on here? Yeah, you get this really weird thing. When you try to build, it says, you know, some sort of error and says, what really happened with Aaron Schwartz? So this is a sick story unfortunately the poor guy he had all sorts of issues with legal trouble and he committed suicide and so the current developer of um two libraries of both uh colors and faker got mad at the way people were using his library for whatever reason and decided like a couple of other times in the last couple of years to yank the actual code from his npm repository and put garbage in there instead Uh, And so what happened was it broke a whole bunch of programs. If they did an NPM upgrade, um, if they had, you know, like wiped their package lock file and did an NPM install, if for whatever reason it triggered that process to reevaluate and get the latest version of the library, um, if you're using like, you know, um, semantic versioning and, and like equivalent versions with tildes and things like that, you might get this broken version of faker or broken version of colors. It's really frustrating. So then... Faker library replacement. So it turns out that there is, uh, yeah, I'm trying to find it where it is on here. Of course I should have been more prepared, but on GitHub, there were a team of people who thank God jumped to it and immediately got a patch in to replace and fix it. This is the broken one. And I wish I had the link to the other one. I'm, of course, I'm not going to be able to do it fast enough. But uh, Faker JS Faker, this is it. So they put together this instead. Um, they restored the right version of Faker, and they actually have a roadmap because it hadn't been being maintained. Ugh. So a whole team of people jumped in, and you know, credit to them, to all yeah. of them, for like jumping in here and solving this. Um, and they're trying to work on getting the old one uh, switched over so that it will forward to this one um, because it really. It's a problem. So that's scary. Actual. It is. It is because you don't know that this is going to happen. Yeah. And it was a darn useful library. I mean, if you look at it, it's really kind of cool. And this would be the same uh, if you were using it, uh, whether it's the old one or the new one. You look up Faker. You you use that object, and you say, "I want an internet address, or an address, or you know, a company name." And just you know, you can say, "Generate me fifty of them." And it's just a nice way of generating fake test data. You can then. Yeah. Send so into a request and get a response. This
1: is why it's okay to try out these things and test in dev environments and be able to just take the next version and see what happens against a good regression suite, which you should have if you're writing software. Yeah, anything. absolutely. Even if it's simple code, it needs a test suite. And when it comes to your actual build process and pushing something into a staging environment or a production environment, in my opinion, the versions should be locked down. You should know what's going into your manifest. It should not be like, okay. We'll look at the manifest after the build and see what it took. No.
0: <laughs> so the thing is, um, I actually have I've been going down a rabbit hole with this. So NPM install, which they shorten to NPM-I, is different than NPM-CI. And so uh, the point is that if you use NPM-I, it's going to evaluate those versions right. and sometimes make decisions that it might upgrade something. Sure. Um, you know, if you if you're using semantic versioning, we're using tildes or carrots in your mm-hmm. version numbers and stuff, and it sees, oh, there's a fix. I'm going to get the fixed version if it's a minor or a major version. Um, NPM CI expects you to have already done the build by some developer who has vetted it. Okay. And whenever you do a build in NPM, it creates a package lock file.
1: Right. Right. Like a requirements.txt can- file in Python stuff like that.
0: Right. Exact Same deal. And a lot of build tools have this right. kind of thing. Maven has its own kind of pinning of things. So mm-hmm. Certainly you try not to not pin in Maven if you can help it. Um, so anyway, so this thing is really useful. So if you are working on a development team, you should probably come up with a really good like plan for how you upgrade your packages and who gets to do the upgrade. So only some people should be able to do i and commit it. Um, maybe you locked down the package lock file to be more restrictive for commits, right. for example. And if you do an NPM CI, which is what the install would be if you're, if you're doing a continuous integration hit, you want CI to get what the current locked versions of everything is. And as a developer, you should probably do the same thing yourself on a regular regular basis run NPM CI as opposed to NPM yeah.
1: I. Yeah. If you don't know about this, I take a look at what Ken's saying and it's important.
0: Yeah. And it's, what's funny and what's embarrassing Is because I do so much of like you know building you know samples and codes I just haven't been marinating this enough and when I saw that I'm like oh yeah why wouldn't you always run npm ci as a regular developer and npm i when you're upgrading and you'd know when it would flip on you and I got burned by that exact interaction so there you go all right then I also wanted to cover just briefly as we're going through this uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of blog posts that just arrived on Chariot's blog Uh, Keith Gregory who's been doing awesome work for us. on the AWS side and cloud stuff. Um, He's just great. He always has really, really good blog articles, managing internet access for AWS workloads. Now this is another one where if you've got an AWS node that needs to get out to the internet, you have some options and he goes in in depth into what you could do. So for example, if you're hosting WordPress or something, um, you know, you're you're going to basically have something in front of your application. I know that icons are really small here, but he's, He's showing like the web firewall, for example, in front of CloudFront right. as an example. Um, he gets into the details here. Yeah, on, this, is a,
1: this is a fantastic blog post. that gets into different ways to basically protect outbound access, whether that's a NAT gateway or your own proxy or VPC endpoints or gateways.
0: This is really good advice. Yeah. You know, so if you're doing AWS, if you're hosting servers on AWS that have to, you know, uh, have outbound access. Uh, uh, internet access to, to get the different resources. Take a look at this and see if you're evaluating the options uh, well enough for your needs. All right. Um, I also had a blog post out there as I've been uh, digging into Next.js and Remix two of the areas I've been looking at lately since kind of the React world has moved on to these server-side frameworks on top of React. And uh, so for Next.js, there's a smart version of a network fetching tool called SWR. Um, suspend wall, uh, what is it called? I forget the name of it. So, uh, st- stale wall revalidate is the name of the API. So it's going to basically have you define a fetcher function and then it calls your fetcher function whenever it feels the data is stale automatically. So for example, uh won't go through the code, but uh, let's see here, where is it on here? So if the user switches tabs in a browser and then switches back to the application, using SWR for all your data fetching, it will invalidate and refetch the data for you by default. Mm -hmm. And you can change that, you can tweak that, you can tell it how long to wait. Uh, If the user goes offline and online, it'll automatically fetch the data for you that way by default. And you can also set a refresh interval uh, to just automatically say every 20 minutes, refresh this piece of data. So it's interesting and it could be by the actual query, it could be at the, the entire app level if you want to. So, and there's a number of options to it. So you should check that out. If you're doing Next.js, one of the benefits of frameworks like Next.js is being able to let it figure out when to cache and then reinvalidate and reload data for you. So the SWR library is one that they support. Vercel is actually uh, the developer of it. Uh, It's on GitHub. It's open source. It's free. You can use it with whatever, but they use that as kind of one of the strategies they have uh, for Next.js. So I have a blog post out there about that and a sample uh, that you can play around with. And then another one I did towards the end of the year last year was um, redux configuration uh, using redux toolkit. And I think we've covered that but I just want to point out that that's there as well. So if you're doing React with Redux in the back end back end in the uh, state tier of your application um, and you're you know looking to build another one, you should also re you should also look at things like use reducer which is a newer feature of React where you don't even need Redux in many cases. But if you're going to use Redux, there's a better way of rolling out a Redux project that simplifies the config of it um, and also makes it uh, a little more featureful out of the box. So that is uh, another blog post we have. And so I would just say, periodically, if you're interested in uh, the kinds of things that you like on this show, um, definitely take a look at where we're coming from. We have a lot of stuff going on all the time, IoT blog posts. We addressed the log for j shell issues recently. We're talking it about like serverless Redshift. That's another Keith article that's very, very good. Um, So just a lot of cool stuff going on out there uh, that we pay attention to that uh, hopefully benefits you. And remember, uh, ETE coming up, uh, it's uh, April 19th and 20th, 2022, 150 bucks, cheap conference, great, fantastic speakers at this conference. And I'm also speaking. So
1: (laughs) The SWR stuff for some reason triggered a memory back uh, years ago when I used to do Adobe Flex because we had built some similar things to do the like we I we would basically pass a, a fetcher or data retriever around for the for the model and mm-hmm. it would do things like you know all the HTTP stuff and then intelligent caching etc all the stuff you mentioned in there
0: yeah it's a pretty good pattern so I guess they're just going with that and I believe there is also something for some other frameworks out there too that that, that you know that are available APIs for this it's interesting that the I was been looking in Remix Run the way Remix Run does it is it's actually, you actually write Node.js calls in your React component. And so you can do Node.js based like database hits against your data, like with the post it's it to run on the server for that part of it. On right? the server yeah. side, yeah. And then it will keep it up to date. So there, there's all these new enhancements coming out in that world, which is kind of the, the thesis of my talk is to say the world's changed on your React developers, check it yeah. out, so.
1: Quick question, I mean, I don't wanna run over time. So for something like Next.js and something that we just mentioned, you know, props are retrieved on the client side some are done during build time on the server but it's yep. all now you're talking about node js calls interspersed in that how do you test a page like that
0: i don't know that's I, I think that's a really good question like how do you simulate the node side of the testing versus the you know react side of the testing is a really good question i think we should probably bribe our friend drew <laughs> maybe that sector is mocked i don't know yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure there's something out there. I just haven't gotten deep enough into it to know what it is. So, okay, interesting. Yeah, better, better to defer that to the. Expert. That would be a
1: great topic. Like that. I mean yep. that, and whatever else you've already have lined up to talk with him.
0: No. Yep, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to him and see if he's interested. So, we- all right, cool. Well, that's it. So, if you're interested in talking to us, you can reach us at at TechCast. Uh, that's our Twitter handle. You can s- feel free to to uh, friend us and send us a DM once we friend you back. Um, you could also email techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. Uh, we get metal, uh, emails from time to time from there, and especially if you want a topic covered, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And otherwise, we will see you in a couple weeks. I'm Ken Rimple.
1: I'm Sujong Kapadia. I just realized that I think there's a virtual background option on this thing. So next oh. time, folks, I'll have a virtual <sighs> background. So it actually looks like I'm working from somewhere really nice and professional, not my bedroom. Uh, and I think we're doing this every two weeks now
0: something like that. Uh, yeah. Let's call it every two weeks. Okay. I okay. the library of Alexandria behind me. That's my goal. The, of the number me.
1: of gray hairs you see between episodes is going to increase.
0: <laughs> All right. Make it a good couple weeks. Awesome. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Thank you.